What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Abortion rights won in every state where it was on the ballot in the midterm elections. Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana voted against anti-abortion ballot initiatives, while California, Michigan, and Vermont voted for ballot measures to protect abortion. Former President Trump blamed losses in many high-profile races on voters coming out to preserve abortion rights. It would have been nice to do more, but there was a specific reason why it was going to be tough. You know what that reason was. It was a a tough issue and it energized the other side and uh, people came out on the other side for a specific purpose. But the attack on abortion continues and the fight over abortion pills is heating up. Medication abortions accounted for more than half of all abortions, even before the Dobbs decision took away the constitutional right to abortion. Joining me is an expert on reproductive rights, Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis School of Law. So, Mary, abortion was on the ballot in the midterms in six states, and it won in all those states. Will this affirmation of abortion rights have an effect outside those states? Well, I think it could help in other states if we have ballot initiatives in those states. I don't expect to see uh, Republican lawmakers who are otherwise planning on passing new bans or kind of exotic enforcement mechanisms reconsidering, because in a state like Kentucky, for example, where voters uh, decided not to vote for a, a state constitutional amendment saying there were no abortion rights, voters also still returned uh, Republicans to the state legislature. So. I think people in those states, states like Texas, you know, South Dakota, are are not going to see the midterm as a reason to kind of pump the brakes when it comes to pretty sweeping laws. So I would expect to see more ballot initiatives in the coming years. But at at the same time, I think after the new year, when states go back into session, I think we should also expect to see even more uh, far reaching bans. Medication abortion counted for more than half of all abortions, even before the Dobbs decision overturned the constitutional right to an abortion. Now the fight over abortion pills is ramping up. And one anti-abortion group is focusing on wastewater in a petition to the Food and Drug Administration. Tell us what that's about. So this organization, Students for Life, is trying a new technique um, because for a really long time, the plan, I think, to challenge abortion pills had been to focus on the alleged safety concerns for um, pregnant women, right? And that hadn't really been working for a long time. The pills remained on the market. And as you mentioned, people weren't, I guess, buying that argument when it came to um, their own safety. So the new strategy focuses on almost environmental concerns. Students for Life has a petition now asking the Food and Drug Administration to require doctors who prescribe the pills to take steps to dispose of fetal tissue. Um, They say it should be bagged, it should be treated as medical waste, and they argue that if that isn't true, it's going to create 
pollution that will negatively affect the environment, negatively affect you know, the water supply, various species that will be exposed to these drugs. And, I, you know, I think this is a little bit of a Hail Mary, but it's likely if the petition doesn't work at the FDA, which we expect to be the case, then there may be a litigation that ensues. Another conservative group is already suing the FDA over its approval of the medication abortion drug decades ago. So this was a suit um, filed in in Texas by Alliance Defending Freedom and a group of other anti-abortion groups, including the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and uh, is arguing that the FDA didn't have the authority to approve mifepristone 22 years ago when it actually did you know, for a variety of reasons, but often centering on kind of the original basis for the FDA's decision to approve mifepristone um, 22 years ago. Democratic senators are urging the FDA to finish up its work to permanently make the pills more accessible. I mean, what else does the FDA have to do? I thought that in 2000 that they approved this. Well, the pills have always been approved, but they've been um, covered by what's called a black box warning and an REMS. So these drugs are essentially, these are kind of limitations and protocols that apply to drugs that are likely to have the most serious side effects or be the most dangerous for patients. And so the pills have always been available, but they've been available on a much more limited basis in the way that, you know, you would imagine a drug that could have a serious possibility for abuse or addictive properties or danger. And so I think Democrats believe that those special limits are an outgrowth of politics rather than science, and they they believe that the FDA should eliminate some of those limits, especially while there's a Democrat in the White House and the FDA isn't potentially going to be transformed by, you know, a future administration. Mary, about 18 states ban the use of telehealth for medication abortion, meaning that in-person medical screenings are required to get the abortion pills. So how does that affect the ability to get abortion pills? Well, there's what's legally possible and what's not legally possible. So I think, first of all, you know, there's the possibility of travel to get abortion pills. There are mobile abortion clinics. There are states that have identified themselves as sanctuaries for people seeking abortions. And so, you know, preventing telehealth abortions doesn't mean people can't travel to an adjacent state to get abortion pills. And there are organizations like Aid Access that send pills from abroad. Um, Of course, this is kind of an underground. There are networks of activists from Mexico who are supplying pills to people in in nearby states like Texas. None of that, of course, is explicitly contemplated by laws that ban telehealth abortion, but it's very hard to shut down the supply of abortion pills, regardless of what the letter of the law says. Do you think that abortion pills will be the target when Republican state legislatures start up in January? Or are there other abortion practices they might try to target next? I think we're going to see a combination of laws targeting abortion pills, but also travel. Um, I think what states are are likely realizing now is that there are a lot of steps. It's, It's kind of a like a chess match, right, where states, a lot of states are banning abortion And then people seeking procedures are finding ways around those bans. And so I think you're going to see the next kind of countermeasure from states that's going to both look at ways of shutting down access to these pills and stopping travel. So some legislators are considering, for example, measures that would 
criminalize, you know, companies and CEOs who reimburse travel out of state for abortion, looking at ways to prohibit travel for abortion or prohibit uh, people from aiding others who travel for abortion, whether that's transporting them, paying for the travel, laws extraterritorially applying criminal or civil prohibitions, right? So saying if you perform an abortion in California on someone from Texas, you could be legally liable. Essentially ways to close what I think states are seeing as loopholes in existing bans. It's worth emphasizing that's not likely to be the end of the story either. I think that's just likely what we're going to see next. Along those lines of traveling to get an abortion, there's been this concern about now that in some states, prosecutors may request information from Google and try to track if women have been to abortion clinic, etc. And Google said that it would delete entries for locations deemed personal, including medical facilities like counseling centers, domestic violence shelters, abortion clinics. But a tech advocacy group, Accountable Tech, conducted an experiment in August and October to test Google's pledge. And it was reported in The Guardian. The group found that searches for directions to abortion clinics on Google Maps, as well as the routes taken to two Planned Parenthood locations, were stored for weeks after they occurred. So, I mean, is that something that people can trust? Or should they just start not using Google, you know, using old-fashioned maps or whatever? I think in general, in the world of kind of digital privacy, Taking additional precautions is always wise, even if tech companies say they're concerned about this and are going to try to take steps to safeguard data. I think there's there's a concern, either one, that those safeguards are not going to be as far-reaching as we believe, or two, that they may not even be put in place in the first place. So I think people should, you know, if someone is thinking about getting an abortion or really doing anything that they wouldn't want to be tracked online before they go online or before they go on their phones, they should look up steps to protect digital privacy, whether that's using another browser, not using a browser at all, not using certain apps. There are a number of steps, I mean, more than we would want to address in this conversation, but that should be the first step anyone takes before taking any of these kinds of decisions online. Besides medication abortions, is there another area that the anti-abortion groups, you know, beyond abortion, are targeting now? Well, I think there's been some conversation about chemical contraceptives. Uh, There hasn't, to my knowledge, yet been much uh, movement in the states to prohibit these procedures, but groups like Students for Life have been active on social media, on TikTok and elsewhere, essentially suggesting that these drugs are, in fact, abortifacients. At the moment, I don't think states have adopted that definition, at least explicitly, although some states have definitions of abortion that are open-ended enough that they theoretically could encompass those drugs. You've also started to see some prominent anti-abortion or pro-life commentators like um, Alexandra DeSantis at uh, the National Review arguing that you know birth control as birth control is still unsafe for women. So I think you're beginning to see conversations that point in the direction of potentially uh, an attack on chemical contraceptives, but I haven't seen um, state legislators doing that yet. I've just begun to see those conversations happening in the movement. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, I'll continue this conversation with Professor Mary Ziegler of the UC Davis Law School. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The Supreme Court is still investigating the leak in May of the controversial decision written by Justice Samuel Alito overturning Roe versus Wade. And now the Times is reporting another alleged breach at the court. According to allegations in a Times story published on November 19th, Justice Alito leaked the outcome of a landmark case over religious liberties at a dinner party at his home in 2014. That decision, written by Alito, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, allowed closely held corporations to claim a religious exemption from the requirement under the Affordable Care Act that employers provide birth control coverage as part of their employee health care plans. Justice Alito has denied the allegations, saying that any suggestion that he or his wife disclosed the ruling early to anyone was false. Alito was also the author of this year's controversial ruling overturning the constitutional right to an abortion, an opinion that leaked into the public more than a month before it was issued. The court has yet to release the results of an internal investigation into that leak. My guest is Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School, who's written an op-ed about this latest alleged breach. Mary, for those who did not read the New York Times story, tell us about the allegations there. So Rob Shank, who is a longtime um, member of the anti-abortion movement um, and the kind of broader religious right, uh, alleged that he had been working for years through his nonprofit to cultivate um, a kind of network of insiders at the Supreme Court, particularly wealthy donors. And, you know, he was doing this, he alleged, both to gain access to and influence within the court, but also, you know, of course, to raise money for his own organization, that there, this, this kind of access and information, he alleged, kind of had a value to donors who might in turn uh, give to his nonprofit. And he alleged that he successfully cultivated donors who created relationships with, with Justices Thomas Alito and Scalia, and that in particular, through these relationships, he gained a tip through Justice Alito about the Hobby Lobby case in 2014, which uh, listeners may remember dealt with the contraceptive mandate of the Affordable Care Act. Justice Alito, according to Schenck, told one of these donors ahead of time how the case would be decided, essentially that the court would side with religious employers in the case and invalidate the contraceptive mandate, um, and that Justice Alito would be the one to write that opinion. Following the story, um, Justice Alito, you know, categorically denied having leaked any information. So did the donors who, um, you know, dined with Justice Alito. Both the donors and Alito confirmed the relationship, it's worth emphasizing, but denied the leak. Uh, But Schenck, you know, replied essentially that he had contemporaneous evidence like emails and statements from colleagues suggesting both that, you know, he knew something confidential and that he expected to win the Hobby Lobby case. So it was, you know, kind of yet another blow to a court that's, you know, had record low popularity and questions raised about its legitimacy. Do the conservative justices really care about the public's opinion of the court? 
I mean, it's hard to say, right? I think not in the way that historically we've grown accustomed to. I think, you know, Justice Roberts, for example, would not have behaved, I think, would not have decided several of the cases last term the way the court did, in part because of his concern for the public's perception of the court. So it's fair to say that the court's new conservative majority doesn't care about legitimacy or public perception. Um, in a way we've we've grown accustomed to, even for the conservative justices. I think the interesting question is, do they have any concern at all, right? Is there a point at which someone like Justice Alito does become anxious about how the public is perceiving their actions? And I I think this this story is an interesting litmus test. I mean, it's, it's interesting, at least, that Justice Alito, I think, has been trying to say, you know, this story isn't true and I would never do that. I mean, I think that those are the kinds of things you do when you worry about how people would perceive you know, your actions. He, he didn't, for example, say, you know, so what if I did that? Like, what difference does it make? Right. I mean, it, it was pretty clearly um, an effort to say this kind of behavior wouldn't have been acceptable and I didn't engage in it. Um, you know, whether or not one believes that, I think that's that's still been Justice Alito's strategy. Over the summer at a speech in Rome and at a recent Federalist Society dinner, Alito seemed to be taking bows for that decision overturning abortion. Yeah, I think in general, um, Justice Alito and uh, and several of the conservative justices are, are kind of evidence of how polarized, you know, not just the the country is, but the legal community is. Because I think, you know, it, we would have expected uh, the justices to be plugged into the fact that the, the Dobbs ruling was unpopular and that it sent shockwaves through much of the legal community. But of course, Justice Alito has his own legal community. The conservative legal movement is... Um, you know, broad and deep and has support across, you know, a number of law school campuses and a number of law firms, a number of you know, lots of parts of the legal world. And I think in those communities, Justice Alito is getting all the approval and support he wants. And I think also from the standpoint of, you know, the kind of jurist he is, I think he sees his commitment to his own interpretation of the law, a skeptic might say his own ideological commitments, however you want to look at it, his idea of what the right answer is. His fidelity to that is so important that he's not as worried about the damage, I would say, to the institution of the court. And in some ways, I think, to your point, kind of relishes confrontations and criticism, doesn't just, you know, display indifference, right, but actually sort of enjoys the criticism. Again, it's sort of interesting to see if stories like this are still a bridge too far for someone like Alito, right, that even that there's some kind of trolling and some kind of enjoyment of criticism. And then there's this kind of allegation that might be a different a different kind of story. Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and Democratic Representative Hank Johnson wrote to the court about the Times story. And Ethan Torrey, legal counsel for the Supreme Court, wrote, there's nothing to suggest that Justice Alito's actions violated ethics standards. Relevant rules balance preventing gifts that might undermine public confidence in the judiciary and allowing judges to maintain normal personal friendships. From that letter, it doesn't seem as if the court is doing any investigation beyond asking Alito. Right. I mean, I think that this is designed to help the court's reputation or to diffuse questions about this. I don't think it will help. I mean, I think that it would have been possible to, to do something that would achieve that. But I think that the essentially the, the, the letter suggests, and I, don't, I am obviously not privy to what investigations went on within the court, but the, the letter suggests simply that there's no evidence that was um, available to Supreme Court's counsel to suggest that such a leak 
took place, the letter mostly restated Alito's denials and then suggested that the allegations made in the New York Times piece were uncorroborated. Uh, and then um, further, I think, interestingly suggested that there wasn't uh, the, the kind of corruption that would be concerning to counsel because the, the donors in the case had no financial interest in, in any kind of case before the court, which, of course, wasn't really what Mr. Schenk was talking about. Allegedly, he was saying there was kind of an ideological interest in the outcome of cases. No one was interested in, in profiting financially, but they, they wanted to dictate the course of policy because of their, their beliefs and their ideological commitments, not because of, of any kind of financial stake. So it, that, that also seemed kind of interestingly non-responsive. Um, again, I, I don't know if there was more of an investigation than we are aware of from the outside looking in, but the letter didn't really provide a lot of new information um, or really explain um, beyond what Justice Alito and, and the donors who, who've been quite clear in their denials have, have already been saying. And as far as the leak of yet another Alito opinion, the Dobbs opinion, Supposedly, there's an investigation ongoing, but it's been months and months and months, and no one has heard anything about that investigation either. Right. I mean, we, we just don't know. I mean, one of the things I think that <laughs> that I think, unfortunately, is, is happening um, from the standpoint of faith in the court is that the court is uh, an institution that often operates without a lot of transparency. And so when these leaks occur, and then the public has no insight into what led to them or what was going to follow them, um, it doesn't really do the court's reputation any favors. And that's certainly true of the Dobbs leak as well. Um, I, I think the kind of sum total of this is that more people in the public are losing faith in the court as an institution. And I don't think that's something we should be excited about. Even, even people who are skeptics of the court or unhappy with the court, I think it's not good for the country when, when voters are losing faith in yet another democratic institution. In your op-ed, you say that the justices feel insulated. And, you know, they are insulated. They have these lifetime appointments. And let's face it, impeachment, they tried to impeach former President Trump twice. It didn't work. And impeachment seems like not even a possibility, really. So what can be done to at least keep them in check a little? Is there anything that can be done? Well, I mean, we know historically that um, Congress has done things to check the power of the courts. Congress is allowed to strip the court of jurisdiction in certain matters. In theory, other kind of court reform measures like adding justices or changing the number of justices um, could also be on the table. I don't have any reason to think there's any political will for doing any of that right now. Um, so I think we're in this kind of interesting cat and mouse moment where Members of the court seem to believe that there's no consequences for really anything, I think with reason, right, because there don't really seem to be any consequences. And, and yet the, the public is becoming more and more disillusioned, I think, to a point that's potentially dangerous for the court. So I, I think that the question becomes, is there any step the court can take that, that goes so far that either politicians or voters reconsider um, their, their ideas that, you know, both that they're very unhappy with the court, but that they're not necessarily supportive of any kind of measure to change how much power the court has or how it operates. Thanks so much for your insights, Mary. That's Mary Ziegler, a professor at UC Davis Law School. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The tide has turned for Donald Trump at the Supreme Court. As president, Trump had a good record at the court. The justices upheld his travel ban, which restricted entry into the U.S. from several heavily Muslim countries while blocking him from ending a deferred deportation program. There were mixed decisions on subpoenas for his financial records, with one ruling blocking the House from getting access. But now, as a private citizen, Trump has had nothing but defeats at the court. Whether it's over the House getting his tax returns, the documents search at Mar-a-Lago, or records to the January 6th committee, Trump has lost at the Supreme Court. And without much fanfare and only one dissent. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store. So, Greg, the latest case that Trump has had at the Supreme Court concerned his tax returns, which I thought had already been decided, but tell us about that. Well, Donald Trump was asking the Supreme Court to block the Internal Revenue Service from turning over his tax returns to a House committee that says it needs them because it's considering legislation regarding to the disclosure obligations of presidents. And the Supreme Court, uh, in a very pro forma, two-sentence order, said, no, we're not going to block that from happening. At this point, the IRS can turn over those documents at any point, uh, and it's possible we'll, we'll see them publicly before the end of the year. I'm a little confused. I thought this had been litigated already, his tax returns. There has been litigation, including about whether his accounting firm had to turn them over to a different House committee and to federal prosecutors in New York. And those returns and other financial information have been turned over to the prosecutor, but they have not yet made it to any House committee and uh, have not yet become public. Now, that was last week. A month ago, the justices considered a dispute over that seizure of classified and other presidential records at Mar-a-Lago. What happened there? Yeah, that that was an issue where um, it, it was in some ways kind of a sideshow uh, in that Donald Trump was trying to say that the special master who's reviewing the materials in the case should also be reviewing those those materials that were marked as being top secret. And uh, he asked the Supreme Court to, to intervene to say that those documents should go before the special master as well. And again, the Supreme Court said no, without any public dissent, we're not going to do that. And in February, again, it's his financial records. Who got them in February? Yeah, this is a case that we that I alluded to earlier. This is the DA in Manhattan uh, has been trying for quite some time to get Donald Trump's financial records and that of his business uh, as part of a criminal investigation. That was a case that the Supreme Court actually considered a while back, and in, in this case, the, the Supreme Court rejected Donald Trump, let the prosecutor get those financial records, and, and so those are now part of that criminal investigation. And the January 6th committee also, what papers did, were they looking for? <laughs> I mean, it's just so hard to keep track of all these disputes about records and papers. 
it seems like we've been litigating the financial records almost since the beginning of his presidency. Yeah, we certainly have. The the case involving the January 6th attack are not his financial records. There are, these are other records. These are records from the White House that Donald Trump was trying to block uh, the, the January 6th committee from getting access to. Uh, they included things, material from his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Um, this is a case that where Justice Clarence Thomas got a lot of criticism because he didn't recuse himself from this case, even though his wife, who was involved in the efforts to overturn the election, had been in contact with uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And uh, not only did Clarence Thomas not recuse himself from the case, he was the one justice who publicly said, I would have stopped the records from being turned over to the January 6th committee. So, Greg, through these last four cases, is there a similar thread or argument that runs through these cases? Well, you you could say this. Look, these are when Donald Trump was president, when he was arguing for things like uh, deference to my immigration policies and, you know, protection of my time while I'm in office so that I'm not besieged with um, all these investigatory requests. The court was somewhat deferential to him and and he did fairly well. Uh, Now that he's a private citizen, uh, you know, his claims for deference are experts on both sides of the issue say, a lot weaker. And so the court is showing a lot less willingness to intervene on his behalf. And in some cases, they apparently think his arguments are are rather weak ones. And that's why we're not seeing any public disagreement when the court rejects them. Are these four most recent cases and Trump losses all shadow docket cases? meaning cases that are not on the regular docket, that do not have full briefing or oral arguments? Everything we've been talking about here are indeed shadow docket cases, yes. Trump's reaction was to criticize the court in a Truth Social post saying, quote, it has lost its honor, prestige, and standing and has become nothing more than a political body. Odd since he appointed three out of the nine justices. Yeah, that's a criticism a lot of people on the other side of the the political divide are lodging at the Supreme Court, that it's become too political. Uh, Yeah, and and of course, for Donald Trump, so much always comes back to the 2020 election. And the court, on several occasions there, refused to intervene on his behalf, refused to overturn the election defeat, refused to even entertain arguments that the results were, were fraudulent. And, you know, that's what Donald Trump pointed to in a statement when he he said, why would anybody be surprised the Supreme Court has ruled against me? They always do. So are there any other Trump cases pending at the court? There's not any Trump cases. There's a a pretty good Biden case that I'm happy to tell you about. (laughs) Biden is trying to revive his uh, student loan uh, debt relief program. Uh, That is currently on hold. And the administration is asking the Supreme Court to lift that hold. And we could get action from them at any point. And we also could could get them saying, we're going to hear arguments in the case. Really, they might take it up as a regular case, put it on the regular docket. Yeah, that's so, so what the Biden administration is saying is, hey, if you're not willing to just let the program go into effect, at least uh, consider what we just filed here as a, as a so-called cert petition. Uh, agree to hear the case, schedule arguments, maybe do it in February, put it on a fast track so we can get a, a final determination one way or another. So the justices are considering overturning the conviction for so-called honest services fraud of a one-time top aide to former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Tell us about the arguments. 
Yeah, this is a guy named Joseph Percoco. He was, was a top aide to Andrew Cuomo, and he was accused of accepting bribes on behalf of a couple companies with contract interest. And the key question in the case is, there's this crucial eight-month period in which he wasn't a government employee. He had gone to work for the Cuomo campaign. And the question is whether this federal law that bars the deprivation of honest services from the public, whether that can apply to somebody who, during a crucial period, was not actually a government employee. And based on the arguments, the Supreme Court seems to think the answer to that is, yeah, probably not, that we are worried that if we allow this law to be used against somebody over conduct that happened when they weren't a government employee, that that, that might mean that we are criminalizing lobbying, criminalizing somebody who is on the outside of the government, who is just trying to pull the strings that they have that, that advance policies and are getting paid for doing that work. And they've been cutting back on these public corruption prosecutions for quite a while. Yeah, there have been a couple recent cases. Uh, one, the most recent one, involved two allies of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie involving, the, remember, the George Washington Bridge lane closing scandal. Uh, the court tossed out a couple convictions there. Then back in 2016, they set aside the conviction of former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. In that case, the court said the things he did didn't rise to the level of official actions. The court in the McDonnell case said that the governor could only be prosecuted for honest services fraud if he did something that rose to the level of an official action, that it wasn't enough if you just arranged a meeting for somebody, that that couldn't be the kind of action that would let you be criminally prosecuted. What's the status of the investigation into the leak of the Dobbs opinion? The status is we have received no word since that the day following the leak when, when the chief justice said, uh, I'm going to direct the, the marshal of the court to start an investigation. He's, he's not given the public any update, has not even said whether the results will become public. No indication that the court has figured out what happened there. For all we know, that may be the status for the foreseeable future. Thanks so much, Greg. I know it's a busy week at the court. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.